are listening to a podcast from The National. Of all the countries in the Middle East, historically none other than Iran has been more defined by the spark within a person or group that drives them to take to the streets and fight for change. For those living societies governed by freedom of speech, to publicly express your views is a right that some take lightly and often for granted. But in societies that stifle opposition with force, the fate of a revolutionary is binary. You either succeed and become part of the heroic change that propels your country forward, or you lose everything. In Iran, this week, we saw a small demonstration that started in Meshhed turn into nationwide protests, with some calling for regime change. This isn't the first time, and it definitely isn't the last. Iran has a long history of coups, protests, and demonstrations. In fact, its very foreign policy was defined by the concept of exporting the Iranian revolution. Most recently, the Green Revolution, or the Persian Awakening as it was being called during its height in 2009, was calling for the removal of then-president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. The grievances were clear then, and the Iranian government's reaction was equally clear. Widespread arrests and a general attitude of de-escalation occurred. This time, however, the main takeaway of the protest is not clear, and neither is the outcome. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi, and we're recording from our studio in the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. This week, we'll focus on the Iranian demonstrations that have evolved into a national uprising. We'll get into the history of protests in the Islamic country later in the show with Nezanin Ansari, an Iranian journalist and managing editor of Kehan London. But first, I'm joined by Golnaz Asfandiari, a political analyst for Freedom House and a journalist who's kept an ear to the streets across the Islamic country. Thank you for joining us. We just got the news of 20 deaths in the protests already. What does that do to an uprising and how could that make these demonstrations different? These demonstrations are different um, in their geographical scope. Um, In 2009, which were the largest demonstrations in Iran in years, most of the protesters were focused, were based in Tehran. There were millions of people coming out in the streets. Now, during these protests, during the past five days, um, the numbers are smaller. There are no millions of people in the streets. Uh, but it's more spread around the country. You know, even uh, for many Iranians I was, I've been talking to, they said they have to look at the map to find some of the cities where these protests are taking place. Now, um, these protests have spread very quickly, uh, and, um, you know, there's been violence, as you mentioned. There have been, um, I think, 21 dead already. Um, And uh, according to the latest figures by Iranian officials, uh, only, I think, 400 people have been detained in the Iranian capital, Tehran. And elsewhere, there have been also dozens of arrests. Um, I I don't have the exact figures. I think these uh, protests are a real challenge for the Islamic Republic. Um, Protesters are very angry, and in some of their chants, they're calling for an end to the Islamic Republic. Um, Many of the chants are targeting the Iranian supreme leader. People have been tearing down his banner and uh, chanting death to the dictator, which means Khamenei, and also death to Khamenei, and saying shame on you, you know, leave and let us be. So, so just as just as the uh, the protests are nationwide in different cities around the world, the the grievances are also uh, quite disjointed. So, 
I, I was just wondering, do you think we could see uh, this kind of demonstration sustained? Or is it too uh, uh, pulled apart, I mean, to become a consolidated effort? Also, how is the administra- administration going to deal with what could be uh, at this point or, or, or already has become a full-on revolution? Well, I, I, I'm not sure this is a revolution. I mean, we want to be careful. There are so many questions still about these protests. Um, and since there are, um, I mean, there's no free media in Iran, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what's been going on. Uh, the, the videos we receive from citizen journalists, from protesters, have been helpful in understanding um, some of the things that are happening. But as I said, there, there are many, many questions. Um, you know, these protests um, apparently started over um, economic grievances, but um, they quickly became political. Uh, as I said, they're, they're calling for an end to the Islamic Republic. So far, I mean, if we compare to 2009, it seems to me that the security forces have been restrained, but this could change. Today, um, we had uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei uh, making his first comments since the protest uh, broke uh, five days ago. He he blamed Iran enemies. He said they've been providing weapons, intelligence services, and money to create unrest in the country. Now, I, I, I don't know yet if this means that it, 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 it's a green light for a tough crackdown. Uh, we have to wait and see how many said that he has more to say and that he's going to address the nation at some other time. I also see um, there seems to be also a, a difference between how hardliners are responding to this and then the more moderate forces, Rouhani, which is he's the president of the country. He um, acknowledged um, that some of these people who are out in the streets um, have grievances and that it has to be recognized, that their right to protest have to be recognized. But the hardliners, Khamenei and, and the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, they put out a statement. The IRGC said that, according to one of their spokespersons, that um, they called the protesters the rioters, and um, uh, they claimed that they've been helped by you know, foreign intelligence services, by Saudi Arabia, by Israel, and also the U.S. It's interesting that the Ayatollah uh, accuses the rest of, uh, or the, the Sunni, the majority Sunni countries of uh, uh, starting a, or trying, attempting to spark a revolution because, or providing weapons, because the same is being done on the other side, especially in regards to Yemen. But, I mean, a big part of these protests are comprised of disenfranchised Iranians, right? They they see the state spend exuberant amounts of, of money on these foreign ventures while failing to uh, maintain living standards in the country. So, I mean, this, this clearly, I mean, it, it would weigh heavily on the administration's mind, even even if the protest fizzles like they did in 2009. What what could be the impact be of, of this these demonstrations? Well, if we look at Iran's past behavior, I don't think they're going to change their foreign policy. Uh, people don't have much of a say in Iran, and uh, you know that's that's the, the establishment has not given the people the right to protest. There's censorship, and whenever there is people are protesting or are the critics, they're always being accused of. Support 
reports from from foreign countries of working with the enemies. So unfortunately, I, I don't think there's going to be much change, but we have to wait and see to what extent or how extensively the um, administration or the establishment is going to crack down. Uh, as I said, for now, it's been less uh, severe than, than in, for example, in 2009, but it could change uh, if um, if the protesters um, continue their uh, their protests. And the point you made about Iran's, um, you know, using all the money to support Bashar al-Assad and, you know, its proxies in the region is a very good point. Actually, one of the chants of the protesters have been, you know, um, leave Syria and think about us instead, you know, or no to Gaza, no to Lebanon, and may my life be sacrificed for Iran. So, you know, they seem to be angry about this policy of Iran. They're, they're very angry, angry young people out there. I spoke to one uh, journalist in Tehran who had witnessed um, a protest and he said there are extremely young people out there, very angry. They said they're they're angry at the establishment, they're angry at reformists and basically they want change. Um, and even I think a deputy um, governor yesterday said that um, um, 90% of those who have been ar- arrested are younger than 25. So I think and some of these people, I think they, they feel they have nothing to lose. You know, they, 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 they don't see any future for them. So it's going to be hard for, for the um, Iranian government to control these protests. It, it is a major challenge. It's difficult to talk about the, these protests without going back to 2009, the, the, green, the green protest, the green movement, as it was called then. At that point, the demographics were a bit different. It was 60% of Iranians were younger than 30 then. Now, uh, 50% is between 25 and 64. Historically, young, uh, disenfranchised, just disenfranchised youth is the very fuel of revolutions. But wouldn't, wouldn't that make the chances for an actual coup today less likely because the population is older? You know, it is likely. I mean, I don't know where it's just going to, because the, the, the only problem, I mean, there's, there's one problem, major problem, I think. There, there's no leadership. Right. No. So, and, and then the government is determined to repress these movements. Um, and, you know, if you look at the past, they've always repressed um, protest movements in Iran in 2009, then the student movement before that. Uh, there have been some, you know, people say, yeah, there have been some rare protests. Yes, but those have been solely like factory workers coming out asking for their wages. It hasn't gotten political. Now it's very different. You know, there are people out there saying, like, we don't want this Islamic Republic. Mullahs should get lost of the country, you know, get out of the country. We don't want them anymore. Um, I, I, honestly, I don't think anyone knows where it's going, but most analysts, I think, agree that uh, Iran is likely to repress, repress this, these pro- protests. Mm. Iran uh, has, as you just mentioned, has a long history of revolutions. And it's this is way before the Western-backed coup that set up the Shah in the 1950s. But I wanted to know how uh, do Iranians view themselves in this context as people who, you know, uh, historically have expressed themselves. And does the administration use the rhetoric that the revolution, that the the demonstrations are actually a conspiracy, that maybe that there's Western involvement in it? Yes, um, 
I, you know, most Iranians um, don't want any um, foreign country to interfere or to, you know, express support for them and encourage them to go out because they know that's going to make the situation worse. Uh, they, they're basically independent. They want to be independent. They're very proud. Iranians are very proud. Uh, they want uh, better rights. Um, but uh, I think most people are not ready for another revolution because we experienced one. And, uh, you know, this is what came out of it. And Islamic establishment that um, uh, claims that everything is based on Islam, but then violates people's rights. You know, there's widespread corruption. So people are very unhappy. Uh, I was speaking to a woman in Tehran. Um, she's not, I mean, she's not, she's not an activist. She's a mother of two, you know, um, and um, in 2009, she took part in some of the protests. She's not a friend of this regime, but she's not ready for violence. She said, you know, um, we we are afraid that Iran is going to turn into Syria and also that many people are going to get killed, but that there's not going to be meaningful changes. She said, we want democracy, we want more rights, but we're not ready for violence. This is not the way we want to go. That was Golnaz Asfandiari, a political analyst for Freedom House and an Iranian journalist. You can follow her on Twitter at GSfandiari. We'll go further beyond the headlines in just a moment, but first let me tell you about The National's other podcasts. Business Extra goes deeper into the movers and shakers that make the Middle East such an important financial hub in the world. And Extra Time, from our esteemed sports desk, is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts, or find us, as always, at thenational.ae. The concept of a revolution has been folded into the very state-building mechanism and laws governing the Iranians since Ayatollah Khomeini took power in 1979. Before that Islamic revolution, it was an Iranian coup d'etat that overthrew the democratically elected politicians and replaced them by the Western-backed Shah. The Iranian coup d'etat of 1951 is called the coup d'etat of 28 Murdad in Iran. But in the West, it has a different name. To the British Secret Service at the time, it was called Operation Boot, and to the American CIA, it was Operation Ajax. The Western influence in sparking the revolution is no secret to Iranians. But like any of these revolutionary powers, those who were once part of the successful rebellion in 1979 eventually got seated in power and became the very thing they once fought. The cycle of rebel turned into fat cat politician disenfranchising the same youth he or she related to is common. Muammar Gaddafi, the deceased leader of Libya, was the picture-perfect example of this. Fashioning himself a revolutionary leader, the Arab nationalists ruled for almost half a century only to be killed ironically in a revolution, a coup aimed at him. I am now joined by Nezanin Ansari, who wrote an analysis for The National on why Iran has become a conducive environment to protest and compares the demonstrations this week to revolutions past. I wanted to start off by getting an idea from you on the reasons behind the unrest, what are the main grievances? We know that the protests aren't, are not exclusively a coup attempt, so what are the people calling for? Uh, there are many uh, grievances, and it is uh, very important to note that at this juncture in history, various strands of grievances have come together. It is for unemployment, uh, it is uh, for corruption, it is for mismanagement, uh, it is for uh, also savers, ordinary savers uh, and pensioners uh, have lost their life savings 
after the collapse of the banking system because of corruption. The state pension system has been broken. Uh, I think uh, so when you look at uh, the, those on the streets and the general uh, population, you see that unlike 19, uh, 2009, uh, when the participants were the young, this time um, we've got a working class uh, people out on the streets. So their grievances uh, are multipolar, but they're all coming together and uniting against uh, one uh, demand. You, you said that this, this, this protest, it's, I mean, it's widely ro- regarded as disjointed, amorphous. You talked about the 2009 uh, revolution, and we'll get into that later. But, but I want to talk about how it's, it's a bunch of different grievances that are grouped up. On the one hand, that's a good thing, as you said in your article, because the state cannot quell it as easily as it would with a clear target. But on the other, that means it lacks organization. And we've seen protests around the world falter because of that. So why would, why would this be any different now? Uh, well, although at the moment uh, we, we don't see any uh, leaders, we haven't seen any spokespeople, the people who are speaking on behalf of the demonstrations are the people on the street. So we are hearing from them. Uh, but when you uh, uh, look at how fast the protest spread, it started in Mashhad, but then it spread to three cities, then ten cities, then, and it has increased. So although we don't see uh, in person physically a kind of organization, but certainly one can feel it that these would not have uh, spread had there not been an organization. And also there are uh, slogans. There are many slogans uh, that are uh, being repeated in various cities at the same time. So we do feel that there is a leader, um, not a leadership, but managers who are controlling um, the demonstrations where they will happen. But at the same time, it's very rudimentary and um, people, because of the anger, and the desperation, they themselves are taking the initiative to go out on the streets. You, you mentioned how the revolution or the, uh, the protest started in Meshhed. From what I understand, it was started from a conservative opposition to President Rouhani. And then they've kind of spread across the country with each group uh, 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 coming up with their own uh, reasons to protest. And you talked about slogans. Could you? I mean, what are some of the slogans that are really gaining popularity? In every revolution, there's kind of its trademark. Is there anyone that's emerging right now? Well, there are a few slogans that uh, stick to mind. Uh, but let me first address uh, your point about Mashhad. Uh, it is true the reformists are blaming uh, the conservatives, and specifically the former candidate, presidential candidate, uh, Mr. Raisi, who uh, runs uh, the religious center uh, in Mashhad, which is the most, uh, uh, the richest center. Uh, and uh, he's got a lot of cash, uh, this center, because people go, it's uh, uh, the shrine of Imam Reza, where people go, um, um, you know, every day, uh, hundreds of thousands, and they give alms, you know, um, monetary cash. So this uh, uh, shrine and the foundation is very rich in cash. Um, his 
father-in-law, the father of his wife, actually runs uh, the entire province. Uh, for this reason, and perhaps maybe other information that the, Mr. Rouhani's uh, government had, they blamed uh, Mr. Raisi and his father-in-law of starting the demonstrations against Mr. Rouhani there. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, the, the slogans in, those, in that demonstration was death to Rouhani, and this is the first time we heard death to Rouhani. But it might have been the spark, but it suddenly grew. So now we see a government and a state involved in blame gaming. Uh, the conservatives are blaming uh, the Rouhani administration for not delivering on the promises of economic recovery. At the same time, the, uh, Mr. Rouhani and his cabinet and the, ref- the so-called reformists are blaming the conservatives uh, for actually starting uh, this demonstration, but as well of uh, controlling the foundations that are not paying any taxes, uh, that are not on the books, but they, every year, for example, every of these foundations that are cash-generating as well because they're religious foundations, although they generate cash and they have uh, their own um, industries, factories, but they still have to be allocate, have, receive an allocation in the budget. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Rouhani this year, actually, when he um, uh, published his budget, he named these organizations. Right. And the anger of the people is also has a lot to do uh, with the amount of resources that are being diverted to either foundations or to foreign adventurism, like in Syria, Lebanon, uh, the Hezbollah okay. in Yemen. Right. These are money. Hezbollah, uh, Mr. Nasrallah has said on the record that it, if it wasn't for the... Um, financial assistance from Iran and from the Islamic Republic, it would not be able to continue. The Iranian people have heard this on and on, Mm -hmm. and they see poverty around them. They see unemployment. They see inflation. And then they see, you know, this money being diverted outside. Another grievance, for example, Iran, as you know, in the past month, uh, we've, uh, we've had two big earthquakes one in Tehran, and one in uh, uh, Kermanshah. Now, in these two earthquakes, since then we've had little earthquakes following. Altogether, we had around 280 small earthquakes last month in Iran. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, been, it's been constructed on fault lines. And then we have this nuclear program right. that uh, the Islamic Republic, these nuclear reactors that are being built, People are not, do not agree, uh, have not been able to participate in the decision-making, in the assessment of either the foreign policy uh, objectives of the Islamic Republic or the internal. All they see is that the money that should be spent inside Iran and for the people for projects that need inward uh, investment, they are being diverted to foreign adventurism and to projects that do not be, uh, that do not benefit 
still sustainable development in Iran. And that, that is why there is all of these different strands of grievances, disillusionment, all coming together, and it's just like a volcano coming up. Nazanin, I wanted to ask you about the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani. He finally broke his radio silence. He said that people have a right to protest. But that violence is not acceptable. I mean, what else could be taken out of uh, his remarks on the protests? Well, I think it is very important to note that for four days, it was radio silence. There was silence. There was um, not a word from either Mr. Rouhani or Mr. Zarif or uh, the Supreme Leader had spoken a few days earlier, but not addressing these demonstrations. What does this show us? You know... The Islamic Republic is mired in an existential struggle. There are two strands of thought within the Islamic Republic. The so-called reformists, who know that Iran has no other choice but to go for sustainable development, to be able to uh, enter into international organizations uh, as a respected partner, um, This is one strand, and they know that uh, they have to be able to reach a compromise. Then there's the other strand, which is more ideological. These are the the young Turks of of the revolution. They want to stay true to the ideals of the Islamic revolution, which was a cause, a cause to spread Islam, throughout the world, globally. It is, it is stated every day that they have to defeat America, they have to defeat Israel. It is their entire existence, raison d'etre, is to overthrow the, old world, the world order that does not agree with them. So these two strands are in, in an existential battle with one another. So you can, I think the radio silence, the four days, it emanates from that uh, cause, that they, di- they didn't know how to really confront uh, uh, the population, the people on the streets. Certainly, thanks to all the engagement that has been going on because of, uh, you know, most recently, the nuclear negotiations, um, the reformists and many elements within the regime are cognizant of the fact that change is needed. They know that. To their bone, they know that. It is how to manage that change that uh, is really keeping them up at night and which is making them even more um, uh, confrontational towards one another. This is the point when the, the ones who are in control of the state are losing their footing. So this is when you talk about the, those who, who made the stake. I mean, isn't Iran a little immune to revolutions, especially when you look at the history of Western involvement in staging coups in the country? So, I mean, as much as it is a, a matter of exporting the revolution or whatnot, isn't there a rhetoric saying that these are foreign powers maybe interfering in Tehran's affairs with these protests? Actually, you know, uh, if you take the change the word, revolution for change, I think uh, Iranians throughout history have proven that there are always the people that are present on the street. Um, we've um, 
since uh, we've had so many, even before the 1978 revolution, um, we've had changes every uh, century. Uh, since 19, uh, we were the first country in the Middle East, in that region, even before Russia, that we had a rev constitutional revolution, uh, which was for the reason of popular sovereignty. Um, the people in 1904 uh, started going on the streets, and by 1906, they had replaced the constitution of the divine right of kings that the divine right is not that of the king, but through the people. So when you come through to 1978 revolution, they suddenly we see from a constitutional perspective uh, a throwback to 1900s. Instead of a king, an, uh, a king that was an autocrat, that was, uh, uh, had the divine power, suddenly they have an ayatollah, a cleric, who claims to have divine power. So certainly, from uh, a constitutional perspective, there was a crisis there. Uh, but from 1978 onwards, people have been present. They have either shown their uh, jubilation, um, you know, after the JCPOA, uh, there were uh, celebrations. For football, there have been celebrations. Elections, they have participated in elections. They have given for... Since 1978, they gave up for Mr. Johnny his mandate to bring economic reform and improvement. They gave their mandate to Mr. President Khatami uh, to bring more political reform. They gave their mandate to Ahmadinejad uh, to get more uh, distribution of wealth, better distribution of wealth. They gave their mandate to Mr. Rouhani. Uh, to allow Iran to have a better relations with the outside world and for the sanctions to be lifted. They have been giving their mandate. And in, within these periods, when they have felt frustrated, they've been on the streets. So in 1999, we saw the first movement of the students. It was, mind you, very limited. It was in Tehran. It was within the universities. And all they demanded was freedom of expression. And the regime at that time actually delineated and uh, said that you, you can make your, uh, to, it defined its own red line, that you do not bring the uh, regime of the Islamic Republic, you do not question whether it should exist or not. So what can we expect to happen? Is it, is it just going to fizzle in your opinion or can we see another milestone revolution in Iran? We are now in the sixth day of the protest. We can now easily say that they have turned into an uprising. Certainly, um, it seems that from the uh, perspective of the crowd, they are very determined. They stay on the streets. They do not go home. They are there, and they want their demanding change. Uh, you asked me earlier about uh, the slogans that they are using. The slogans are they want uh, a change of regime. They are saying neither reformists and neither uh, conservatives, that the game is over, that for the, they feel that for the past uh, 20 years, even more, that Iran has been engulfed. The crisis in Iran is because of 
uh, the games played between the conservatives and the reformists to, to maintain the status quo as is. And now they do not want the status quo. So it all depends from now on how uh, uh, determined uh, uh, the protests are, but how determined the security forces are. We, we have received uh, some videos and reports and about uh, the uh, army. Uh, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the army. Um, in the past uh, month, uh, in the past year, there have been plans to, for the Revolutionary Guards to take over the army, the command of the army. There's dissatisfaction because of that. Uh, because of lack of extra funds, uh, a lot of colonels have not uh, been paid uh, and have not been promoted. So there is dissatisfaction about that because their pay is very low, their families are suffering. And we have received um, numerous reports that they, are, uh, they will not uh, uh, take arms against the people and they will defend them. So there are all these different variables that, have a, that will be coming into play in the coming days, okay. which will probably determine uh, how fast uh, this uh, uprising is going to go ahead, whether it will be able uh, to mature itself from an uprising, we have seen it uh, mature from protest to uprising, mm -hmm. whether it will uh, turn into a resistance, and whether then it will, we, we can see, a, uh, again, a growth in its political leadership. We still ha we have not seen these on the streets at the moment. Okay. So a lot will happen on how uh, the opposition will come together and how it will uh, take over or uh, mature itself, and it will also depend on how Mr. Rouhani and the Islamic Republic and uh, uh, the Revolutionary Guards, uh, the law enfor enforcement forces, the military, what actions they will take and how they will react. That was Nazanin Ansari, managing editor of Kehan London, an Iranian journalist. You can follow her on Twitter at Nazanin A, that's N-A-Z-E-N-I-N-A. -E I'd like to thank my guests Nazanin Ansari and Golnaz Asfandiari for joining us. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.